Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it is Wednesday, May 30th, 2018. On tonight's show, we'll recap the series against the Cleveland Indians, which for the first four and a half innings of the series, it was going pretty well for the White Sox. Then splat as the defense and poor outings from Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez made this a laugher of a series. The White Sox are now 16-37 and 37 on the year, and they have to win four of their next seven games to avoid the worst 60-game start in a season for franchise history. Can they do it? Well, it starts with a three-game home series against the National League's best team, the Milwaukee Brewers, which we'll preview that series later in the show. Joining me to discuss Cleveland crushing the White Sox this week is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I think this went exactly how I visioned this series as far as the first series between the White Sox and the Cleveland Indians, what are your thoughts on how this series went? More or less. I mean, the last two games, um, you know, this, this one that Lopez lost, the Lucas Giolito start, those, you wouldn't expect Lopez to pitch that poorly, but he didn't pitch, at least from what I saw, I, I'm still catching up on the game because it was, I, it was during a work day, so I couldn't see the whole thing, but it seemed like a lot of just grounders finding holes and, uh, um, just uh, the Indians feeling it. <laughs> They're a good team, on, perhaps on an upswing, and so they outclassed the Sox. The first game was the one that was really tough to watch um, because that's just that was a that was a failure in all. That was a cascade failure, basically, where defense led to pitching, led to Renteria, and just everything like that. And yeah, 
Yeah, some painful memories of Robin Ventura mishandling the bullpen in that yeah. first game. Having four bull, you know, four relievers or four pitching changes in an inning. I he was coaching, he was managing that game like it was a postseason game. Yeah, pretty much. And and uh, I looked it up, and Chris Volstead had never pitched one for just one better. Um, even like in a situation where he came in and gave a walk off or something like that, and really, uh. Uh, he'd never been using that. And I thought when they brought him in, it's like, well, you know, here's Chris Volstead in a high leverage situation, but I understand first game of the series, they want to get some innings out of him, And then they pull him after a batter. And that just seemed and after a batter where he got a pop-up, you know, it wasn't like he gave up a slam or anything like that. It was just a, um, good pitch that got weak contact and just the worst possible result. And yeah, that, that's when it seemed like a little, got a little bit off the rails just with uh, Jace Fry. I mean, Usually, Jace Fry against lefty is pretty good, but I mean, just, yeah, when you're managing, when you're doing three pitching changes, uh, four pitchers, three relievers in the fifth inning, and you still have four innings to cover, that's really problematic, I think. Yeah, that's poor managing. But as you said, I mean, it was all around. After that fifth inning, everything went wrong for the White Sox, even though they scored six runs against Cleveland, just everything went wrong the managing the defense the offense the pitching after that fifth inning and it just was a continuation for the rest of the series yeah it was like dylan covey pitched like you would expect him to just mainly not great but throwing strikes getting outs you know he looked like he was going to get through five with you know a couple runs allowed and so um yeah that's really i guess it was kind of indicative of the kind of pitching performance you would expect or, or that the white Sox can expect to get try to win with this and uh they really just uh fumbled it <laughs> and kept kicking it and eventually it was a uh i guess if i'm doing a football analogy that'd be like kicking a fumble out of your own end zone for a touchback or something <laughs> yeah or the offense fumbles it at the goal line and yeah. the defense and you kick it out of the end zone on yeah that's one yep <laughs> yeah that, that's a good example you know it's easy to be doom and gloom when the White Sox are 16 to 37. We're going to try to pull what the positives are because if you can't pull some positives from the games and focus on the positives of the performances, it's going to be a very long 109 games remaining of this season. Uh, however, from a continuation from our conversation from Monday's show where Jim and I discussed in great length as far as an early look at Jose Abreu's trade market because Abreu has been performing well for the White Sox, especially the month of May, and he's became the best first baseman right now in the American League as soon as the polls open for the All-Star game. Hopefully, Abreu gets that recognition. However, before today's game... Jose Abreu did speak to the media and they asked him about as far as the season and the struggles of the losing. And Abreu said, it's difficult. We're not here to lose games. I'm not here to lose games. I wasn't born to lose games. And the article continues from the Chicago Sun-Times. After the game, the players talked things over while reporters waited 25 minutes for the clubhouse to open. When reporters walked in after meeting with Sox manager Rick Renteria, a somewhat animated Abreu stood at his locker talking to about a half dozen Spanish-speaking players. And Abreu said, We understand that we are in a process and we have faith and conviction in the process. We have to be patient. Sooner rather than later, we want to start winning more games. A balanced message from Abreu, Jim. I'm tired of losing, but I understand where this team is, but we hope to be winning more games sooner than later. 
But Jim, this isn't the first time Abreu has voiced frustration about the team's play. He questioned the 2016 team's desire to win games late in September when the Royals won 14 of 19 games, if you remember that fond year. Mm -hmm. Will the losing finally get to the White Sox best player? Probably not, uh, at least in a way that, I guess, affects his performance, affects uh, the way he goes to work and his role. I think he's taken it very seriously, the leadership thing, and I think this is probably a reflection of that more than trying to change addresses or get teams interested in asking for him. Um, Because he he knows that, uh, um, at least especially the Spanish-speaking players, and I think, you know, English has been a point of, um, you know, wanting to improve it, but I think at this point, um, you know, based on the scene painted and based on what reporters say about his English proficiency and stuff, it still seems probably like he speaks to at least part of the clubhouse, maybe not the whole thing right now. Um, But I imagine that's just part of his responsibility and, like, uh, um... He, you know, given how well he's playing and how it's not showing up in uh, in results, I, I know that. Uh, I'm trying to think what story it was. Talk. I, th- I think it was probably a Hawk Harrelson story. Now I think about it, how he said like, you know, when you go 0 for four. I think it was Alvin Dark. That was it. It was in his autobiography. I think and it was in the stories he's told. He basically said like, if you go 0 for four and the team wins, you better look happy. If you go four for four and the team loses, you better look pissed. And I think that's kind of probably along the same lines of, you know, he's having an all-star season, but um, that isn't good enough. You know, it isn't good enough for, you know, what he wants to achieve and what's, you know, it, it, it's basically like, it sounds weird. Like he could phrase his comments as putting them himself ahead of the team. And that saying like, you know, this team needs to catch up to me. Yeah. I'm being great. Yeah. I'm, I'm having another great season. Uh, and yet we're We have 16 wins at this point. Uh, that's really sad, but I think it's just more of a matter of, um, I'm having a great season and I'm not happy. I think it's more of a reflection of that. And so I think, you know, like you said, a balanced message uh, where there's some personal frustration and then, you know, at least, you know, whether it's, um, you know, more for him or more for the media or whatever, just to kind of, um, you know, cover his bases. Um, speaking to the team, I think it's, it's uh, um, I guess nobody's in it alone. And, and, you know, whatever kind of season you're having, however long you've been in the league, you know, we're all in it together. I think that's probably the message he's trying to convey. I t- if anyone should be voicing their frustration, I do think rightfully so it's Jose Abreu because yeah. ever since he signed with the White Sox, a six-year deal back in 2014, all he knows is losing Jim. Yeah. Well, it's like Joey Votto, a similar, yeah. um, you know, kind of similar track. You know, Votto has been in it longer. But still, just uh, you know, player expressing frustration because he's been so good for so long, and the team around him has never been able to meet his standards, or at least uh, you know to have you know, not even have a winning season, not even have a 500 season with what he's accomplished and what they built the first time is pretty sad. And I think that's something to um, you know we've seen it uh, on discussions and such with the whole trust the process thing and. It always kind of rubs me the wrong way. Just this whole like nobility and losing are kind of like a, um, like we're being savvy because we, um, you know, we're, we're, we're an eligible fan. So we know that losing is on purpose and, or, you know, that has meaning <laughs> yeah. and such. It, you know, there's a little bit of like, uh, everybody copes with it a different way. And it's, I think it's, some of it's a defense mechanism and <laughs> just trying to, you know, be palatable, but there is really no, uh, nobility in losing. And so I think it just, when you get to a, where you're at in a Braves career, uh, it does wear on you. And I tweeted this out that if Abreu wants to win, 
then I think he should ask for a trade because I don't think 2019 is going to get better. And we talked about this on Monday. There are no assurances that the White Sox are going to offer a contract extension, right? After this year, we think that there'll be some talks and I think it'd be wise in the White Sox to do that. Looking at their farm system that doesn't really seem to be somebody, a budding superstar hitter at first base for the White Sox to replace Jose Abreu's production in the lineup. I'd like Abreu to stick around. But if this gets too much for him, I mean, we saw this offseason with Giancarlo Stanton. He forced a trade and got traded to the New York Yankees because he got sick and tired of losing in Miami. And even though they've been to the postseason, I think a large part of Manny Machado going to be leaving Baltimore this offseason is he's sick and tired of the losing. And and for Abreu, I get it, man. I really do. And... Uh, he's in a tough spot because there's not much help that'll be coming. Even if Michael Kopech and Aloy Jimenez join the team, while it'll be more exciting, that doesn't necessarily mean the White Sox are going to win more games. Because as we can tell, and what you have written about in your column for The Athletic on Monday, a third of the starting lineup from the Charlotte Knights on opening day is currently with the Chicago White Sox right now. That's how bad things are. For the White Sox 25-man roster with the combination. Yeah, 40% if you include Jace Fry. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, the combination of injuries and suspensions, it's been a mess. I mean, covering this team last week, it's it's a messy situation. And Jose Breu has every right to be frustrated. We'll see if the front office does anything about it. I don't think that they will. Uh, It's hard to try to tell Jose Breu, stick with it, man. Stick with the plan. Stick with the process. This is your fifth time, you know, fifth year losing. It it gets to you. I mean, every yeah. athlete wants to win. Yeah, I think with Abreu, it's you know a, a slightly different situation from the Stanton Bado situations, and, and I guess Machado would be a similar one where you know Machado is yet to reach free agency, and I think Abreu is the same way. So I don't think, I think for Abreu and Machado, it's more of a matter of biding your time and picking where you want to go after your team control thing. So I don't think he'll out and demand a trade and. and you know, with with uh, Carlos yeah, Rodon, right? Yeah, and with when and with Carlos Rodon coming back, and you mentioned Kopech and Jimenez, like I don't expect that to add to wins. Um, you know, to all of a sudden to kind of flip the standings and make a run at four hundred, <laughs> I think five hundred's uh, the question. You know, even close to it, but maybe four hundred. Um, but I'm I'm interested in the feel of the games, just how uh, how fun they are. Because I mean, that's that's the difference between. Last year and this year, they they won sixty seven games last year, but it was fun. It felt they felt competitive, and they felt competent, and you know the the losses were good losses, or at least you know they're quality major league losses. These ones, in a lot of cases, are not, and it's just a matter of I think if the White Sox you know don't drop you know was it twelve consecutive series like they did and, and you know are able to rattle off six wins in eight games at some points, even if they give up those gains. I think that's just more of a matter of, uh, I guess, appeasing somebody like Abreu who is, you know, understands the score and understands, you know, what the team is doing, but also wants to occasionally see some results once in a while. Yeah, I think new blood as in as far as adding Carlos Rodon and Michael Kopech and Aloy Jimenez after the Super 2, 
Uh, maybe can, you know, re-energize as far as the veterans to have them continue believing in this process. Because it's one thing to try to tell yourself that this is going to happen, right? I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to lose weight. But until you actually start putting the work, until you start seeing results on the scale, you know, you're just you're just trying to pump yourself up and try to get yourself to believe that something's going to happen, but you're not seeing the results, right? And, and I, I, I wonder... I wonder if this will get to him. He's too good of a player that will impact his play, and he's too good of a teammate and team leader to ask for a trade. Uh, but if if the White Sox are still hesitant to call up Kopech in June and still hesitant to call up Jimenez uh, as far as until after the All-Star game or even after August, maybe not until September, shoot, because he's still in A, not AAA, uh, then I can understand the frustration for Jose Abreu where the conversation will turn to the front office and be like, hey, when are we going to win, right? We want to win games sooner than later. Give us, you know, send help. So it'll, it'll be interesting. You know, a good June though, man, if the White Sox can have a good June, but what I mean good June, Jim, is like if they could finish 500 in the month of June, that would just do so much, not only for the guys in the clubhouse, but also the fans as well to have some excitement heading into the months of July and August, hoping to see good baseball. Because I think at this moment, everybody understands at the end of May uh, that this season is lost. Just give us something to root for, uh, for the remaining four months of the season. Now, switching topics from Jose Abreu's frustration, the starting pitching, the strategy was for Ronaldo Lopez and Lucas Giolito, stay in the strike zone, try to not walk, and get yourself into trouble against the Cleveland Indians. And the Indians lineup, even though they've been struggling for most of the year, uh, they looked like a powerhouse in the last two games, uh, especially with Lopez. I mean, it was death by a thousand paper cuts. They weren't getting a ton of exit velocity against Ronaldo Lopez. Uh, but with Giolito giving up five runs, nine hits over six innings, and Lopez not even getting out of the third inning today, Jim, as he gave up seven runs, eight hits. Uh, is there anything positive that we can take away from their starts. Well, Giolito, it's, I think, um, he had to throw strikes and he did, you know, at least he showed that because we, as we've seen in previous starts, the one against Baltimore, the seven walk outing, you know, it's, it's, uh, in, in both of those nights or days, he was just missing and not able to control himself and falling off the mound and needing, two mound visits in the first inning alone, you know, needing that kind of <laughs> help. And in this case, you know, he did have the rough first inning, but he was throwing strikes. He wasn't, um, yeah, it didn't seem to be affecting him physically, visibly. And that needed to happen. I think the Indians are a good team, especially the top of the order is loaded with uh, Lindor and <laughs> Ramirez and Brantley. They all look like all-stars, potential MVP candidates. And, um, yeah, there is, I guess, something you be said for, getting beat by their good hitters, you know, and, and, and trying to compete and just getting, they're just better than them right now. And I think Lopez, it's, um, there's nothing really positive aside from the fact that he was throwing hard, you know, he was throwing 96, 98. That's also a negative and that his best fastball was still, you know, not getting a whole lot of swings and misses and they're finding holes. But I think, uh, if anything, it's a reminder maybe for Lopez that he's not a number one starter. He always maybe, you know, number three, number four, I, I think, you know, over the course of a full season with flashes for more right now. And um, I think when the White Sox traded for him and, and based on what he showed with uh, Washington and the way his fastball velocity kind of comes and goes and the way he got, you know, had problems getting swings and misses last year, um, you know, that 
he had been overperforming. This was luck evening out. And so, uh, you know, it's still, he's still what he was, I think, just after the start. He just happened to be beat by better hitters and beat by bad luck. And, and so I think you throw it out. But I think for the time being, it's just more of a reminder that Lopez still has strides to make himself in order to be a more reliable, you know, I would say number two or number three. Right now, I think he's more number three, number four, uh, ultimately in a good first division rotation. I don't mind, though, him having the mentality of I'm an ace, even though, as you mentioned, he may be a mid-rotation guy. I think after the start, though, going up against Corey Kluber, it is a lesson to be learned for a very young pitcher. Yeah. You have a bad start, but you look across the diamond and you watch the guy you're going up against who's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. You can learn some things because Corey Kluber was not messing around against the Chicago White Sox today, pitching six clean innings, and he only threw 90 pitches. That was an easy day for Corey Kluber, which, you know, for the marathon season, the Indians need to save as many innings as possible for Corey Kluber because they're probably going to the postseason. And I think today that's the lesson for Ronaldo Lopez, that your arsenal, you can't just throw it down the middle of the plate and get away with it. Guys are going to beat you. So... Le- tough lesson, but you know, hopefully this will make him a better starting pitcher and he will be able to bounce back in his next start. And then Tim Anderson, he had a good series offensively. He was five for 11 this series with two runs batted in. And I thought Jim that Anderson was having a terrific month of May. I looked at his monthly splits. No, <laughs> you would just look at the month of May and he's hitting barely above 200. So I dug a little deeper into this. For the first half of May, Tim Anderson was not having a good month. From May 1st to May 15th, Tim Anderson was 7 for 41 hitting. That's a 171 batting average with three home runs, five runs batted in, 13 strikeouts, and four walks. Since May 16th, so the last two weeks, Anderson is 14 for 47. He's hitting 298 during that stretch. It's a He's hit four home runs. He's driven in eight runs. He's struck out 11 times, and he's walked five times. Again, he has a career high in walks so far uh, in 2018 with 17. And I guess, Jim, in the last two weeks, it seems to me that Tim Anderson is finding his groove. Do you agree with that and that this is hopefully something that Tim Anderson could build into not just a good couple weeks but a good month or even more? Well, I was pretty bullish on him entering the season just based on the way he finished um uh, the 2017 season. So I think, you know, to be consistent, I would say, yeah, this is, I think closer to who he is. And I think, uh, um, there was a period, especially against right-handed pitching in the, in the first month where he looked, or the first half of the month where he looked out of control and didn't really have a great approach, even though he's walking more, just seemed to be chasing pitches. He used, you know, had one of the highest swing percentages on the team, one of the biggest chase percentages. And even though he's a decent bad ball hitter and, and better than others in that regard, um, I think he's used to hitting with a big zone, even in the minor leagues. I think he would, uh, you didn't walk much there and hit for a high average. So you have to, you have success hitting pitches out of the zone. I think, uh, you know, maybe for a hitter who's still young, still getting around the league and still, you know, figuring out an approach that wins, you know, I think you can probably get into ruts where um, you try to succeed the old way you succeeded and by chasing pitches or trying to be aggressive and, um, looking for a pitch, you're looking for a type of pitch. It's out of the zone. He's still swing at it, you know. And, and so I think he probably has to occasionally take breaks to um, figure out what he's doing. And I think he, there's a well-timed benching along the way where Renteria gave him a breather and came back because he'd been playing every day. He'd been battling the thumb problem. Mm-hmm. You know, that could also be another factor where 
you know, that added to his first half of the month struggles. But uh, yeah, I, I think for a guy of his style and his aggression, you know, the, the aggression that he plays with and he hits with, I think there probably will be times where he has to gather himself and say, uh, um, you know, swinging more isn't going to get me out of the problem. And sure enough, he comes back and I think, you know, facing lefties helps because that's uh, a good way for him to get on track is by facing lefties, but it also carried over to righties, just having uh, barreling up pitches, laying off more, get drawing walks against righties. So I think uh, that would be something I'd watch going forward is I, I expect him to kind of run hot and cold a little bit, but I think uh, uh, for Anderson, it'll be a matter of limiting those cold streaks to just, you know, maybe a series at a time, you know, maybe a bad week versus a bad two plus weeks. Anderson now leads the White Sox and wins above replacement for position players. Are you surprised that after the first two months of the year, it's Tim Anderson? It's a narrow lead, but it's Tim Anderson on top. Not necessarily just because shortstop is a huge boost, especially if you play it well. And that's the, I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, the the whole every time Anderson is. And I think he's also you know prone to defensive slumps uh, at this point in his career. Um, and... You know, see, it, especially with the draft coming up and Nick Madrigal being a thing, you know, with uh, middle infield and everybody wanting to move him off the position, he's a good shortstop. At least he has the skills to be an above-average shortstop. Sometimes I think his playmaking uh, hits cold spells, and so he's just, I would say, an average shortstop when you add in reliability of playmaking, but I think he's got the uh, tools to be better. And uh, just the range is really impressive. Uh, that play he made against Lindor um, to start the game on uh, – yeah, and that's you know that's the kind of play you know making a play thrown across his body. The one error that Skull uh, didn't dig out, I wouldn't call that an error on Anderson because he's planting from his back foot on the outfield outfield grass thrown to a first time first baseman. Uh, I think Abreu would have picked that one. Skull didn't, and the error goes to Anderson. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, when you when you kind of look at his defense, and if you try to keep in mind that you know range is more important than errors, especially at this point in his career when he's a young shortstop and you want to see the physical evidence of good defense first before uh, the polish comes, he's got, yeah, there's no point in giving up on him, especially now and even thinking about it until there's a shortstop in the system who is remotely compelling. And there isn't right now. I mean, when you're talking about moving Anderson to center field when Eddie Alvarez is the starter and short and uh, starter in Charlotte, um, I, I don't get it. It just seems like you're just setting yourself up. It's like, uh, I, I, I brought it up on Twitter, just the Jose Valentin thing, 2000-2001. Made a lot of errors, also did a lot of cool things for a shortstop. You know, hitting for power, hitting for average, running the base as well, showing great range. Just made 36 errors, I think, and the Sox decided that was too much. They got Royce Clayton, and they wasted money on a position they need, didn't need to upgrade. And I think that's really the what you want to avoid with Anderson is you probably can't, you can do better as a shortstop, but at what cost? And so I wouldn't even think about moving Anderson right now until say you draft a Madrigal until Madrigal shows that uh, he's, you know, knocking on the door. Yeah. Or spend a second round pick on a high school shortstop or something like that. I agree with you uh, about as far as Tim Anderson long-term second shortstop. I understand that, you know, fans get frustrated because some of the time, some of the plays he makes are unorthodox or not fundamentally sound. Uh, but he makes plays that a lot of shortstops in the Major League Baseball cannot because he's got terrific range and he has a strong enough arm to make those plays. Uh, but offensively, weighted runs created plus, he's at 106, so he's 6% better than league average. He's at 1.3 wins above replacement. He's positive offensively in runs and he's positive in defense in runs. His walk rate is up. His strikeout rate has been reduced, believe it or not. 
and his BABIP is 268. So it could get better for Tim Anderson if his numbers normalize like we've seen the last couple of years that maybe he can add a couple more points to his batting average, which obviously means more power out of his swing and more damage that Anderson can do. So I think there's some positive things. If you're looking for a positive right now to the 16 or 37 Chicago White Sox, I think Tim Anderson has been playing some really good baseball in the last couple of weeks and hopefully continues. Someone that is having a rough month is Yohan Mikata. In the month of May, Mikata was 15 for 73. That's a 205 batting average. Only one home run, six runs batted in with 24 strikeouts and eight walks. Uh, the 24 strikeouts, huge reduction from April and the first two games in March where he had 47 strikeouts. Uh, yet though, uh, Again, he's just not getting a lot of power as far as home runs. We're not seeing it this month. He missed some time with the hamstring injury in the month of May. Are there any other clues other than his injury, Jim, that could be causing this slump? Well, it seems like uh, timing is off. You know, you mentioned that the power is not there, and there are pitches where you expect him to drive him and he fouls it off or rolls it over. Also seems, and I'd have to look this up, I'm, I'm just kind of uh, spitballing here, but it seems like they're staying away from him more. Um throwing more pitches that he can roll over, uh, whether it's you know, change-ups or fastballs away or you know, curveballs away, you know, backdoor stuff to him. And it just seems like the swing is more feeling for pitches and trying to poke him rather than you know, staying back and driving him the opposite way. So I think it's partially you know, maybe the injury, the DL stint interrupted his timing a bit. And also I think it's just the maybe retooling his approach to cover the outside half better because um, I just haven't seen much power... Or, or contact directed that way to, to go with the pitch. And I think he has that in him. He just hasn't showing it right now. Good observation. That's definitely well, something I'm going to be paying attention to this weekend. Yeah, well, I want to look it up too to just, you know, verify it. But, you know, from watching him, it just seems like, uh, um, and, and kind of hoping, yeah, it's basically a feel of what I watch and kind of like, oh, I hope they don't pitch him outside. And I think that's what I've been feeling lately is just like, I hope he can stay back on these changeups he's throwing. And I could be wrong, but I want to uh, look that up to see if that's true, if he is getting more soft stuff away. Yeah, it'd be great to read about that or even hear about that on the next show. You're not my boss. <laughs> <laughs> It's a request, Jim. When you got time, if you can let us know, that would be great. <laughs> oh, man. We'll see how the Milwaukee Brewers pitch against Yohan Mikata. And speaking about the Milwaukee Brewers, we'll preview that series in a moment here. But a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the Seeky Gap on my phone, and I use it all the time to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. As I mentioned, I was able to gra uh, grab a great deal, four tickets for $40 on August 11th for Jim Tomey Bobblehead Day, and I grabbed four tickets for 38 bucks in September when the Angels come into town so I could see Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, and hopefully Michael Kopech and Aloy Jimenez will be with the White Sox. And if you're looking for... Great seats this upcoming weekend. The weather should be really good in Chicago, not as hot as it was during Memorial Day weekend. SeatGeek has great deals. They have tickets starting for $17 on Friday, also $17 on Saturday, which I believe is the 1983 
road jersey giveaway. First 20,000 fans in attendance get a 1983 replica jersey, so that's pretty cool. And then Sunday, tickets are just $7 on SeatGeek. And the best part is our listeners can save quite a bit of money through SeatGeek in a couple of ways. One, if you've never used SeatGeek before, download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code SOCKSMACHINE. That will get you $20 off your first purchase. Again, that's Machine, the promo code for $20 off your first purchase. Or SeatGeek has extended their MLB discounts through the month of June, in which you can save $10 off tickets by using our promo code MACHINE. Again, $10 off on Major League Baseball purchases using our promo code MACHINE. So if you're looking to get a good deal to go to the games this weekend, definitely take advantage of our promo codes and buy on SeatGeek and SeatGeek. Now it's time to preview the upcoming series against the National League's best team, the Milwaukee Brewers. A little bit weird to say that, Jim, but the Milwaukee Brewers have been playing very good baseball as of late, and they have a sizable lead against the Chicago Cubs as they beat the St. Louis Cardinals today 3-2. The Milwaukee Brewers are 15 games above 500. They're 36-21 and on the year, and they have been road juggernauts. They are 18-10 and on the road, as at this time of the recording, they have a four-game lead against the Chicago Cubs, who are in second place in the National League Central. And your probable pitchers for this series, starting on Friday, June 1st. This is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Chase Anderson for the Milwaukee Brewers against Hector Santiago for the Chicago White Sox. On Saturday, June 2nd, it will be, I want to make sure I get this name correct, Jolice Chassin for the Milwaukee Brewers against James Shields. That is a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start on Saturday. And on Sunday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Brent Suter against Dylan Covey. Maybe. I'm holding out hope, Jim. Mrs. Rodon tweeted that they were in stuck in traffic in Chicago. I am hoping she brought her husband from <laughs> Charlotte. That is all I'm going to say about that. Because if Rodon's in Chicago, I'd rather watch Carlos Rodon start on Sunday. But from your column today... Most likely won't see Carlos Rodon until the White Sox have that, their doubleheader against that, Minnesota. That would be a great troll move if, <laughs> if she tweeted from Chicago and he wasn't there. Well, you know, let's your significant other, right? You're, you're dealing in Chicago, yeah. and you know we hear about all the things baseball wives have to do prepare, you know, for your living quarters in Chicago. He hasn't been there. I don't know how long, right? You got to set up as far as the apartment and get ready for the rest of the regular season. You know, they do a lot for their husbands. You know, they deserve a lot of credit. So, yeah, it would be it would be a troll mood. <laughs> but, you know, I'm holding out hope, Jim. I'm holding out yeah. hope. He traveled with her and he is in Chicago. And maybe we'll hear something tomorrow because uh, it'd be great to see Carlos Rodon on the mound for the White Sox. He was just absolutely terrific in his rehab starts in Charlotte, even after getting hit in the face uh, in his next start against uh, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Uh, Rodon was just simply messing around with those hitters, and it just looked so easy for him. I mean, that's going to be a that's going to be so much fun to watch. Is a high caliber pitcher, and I still believe Carlos Rodon is a high caliber pitcher uh, to be joining the White Sox. Will hopefully give this starting rotation a big boost. But again, Jim, like I mentioned at the top of the show, 
The White Sox have to win four out of their next seven games to avoid the worst 60-game start to a season in franchise history. How do you feel about their chances to win a game or two against the National League's best? They can. I mean, uh, it's they have a the the Brewers starting pitching is not that impressive. Um, they seem to really get by with you know good offense, and they also have Josh Hader in the bullpen who is yeah. struck Avoid out. Avoid Josh yeah, Hader. Sixty six <laughs> strikeouts in thirty three innings uh, and ten hits allowed. The league is batting uh, league's batting oh ninety four against them. How many strikeouts and how many innings? Sixty six and thirty three. <laughs> so two strikeouts. <laughs> I think he's striking out fifty seven percent of hitters. So. He does a lot of their lifting. He's pitched 33 innings already in 19 games. So basically, you know, this uh, this part of the rotation for the Brewers, um, just kind of get through five or six, then give him the ball for two or three. He's got seven saves. Jeremy Jeffress has five saves. So, I mean, like, they, they seem to uh, – or he has six saves. Jeffress has three. Uh, you know, they kind of uh, spread it around a little bit when it comes to, uh, you know, I guess the bridge work that Hayter does and whether – he needs to finish a game or whether they can hand it off to somebody else because the Brewers extended the lead. So, um, you know, there's the opportunity to pile on runs early, uh, especially home runs against these starters. Um, so that's, I think, uh, why I wouldn't, you know, rule it out, stealing game. They just have to pile it on early and, you know, have to avoid the same. But it's tough, and it's going to be, you know, between this series and the twin series, you know, with the doubleheader, which are always tough to, um, you know, if, if they need to win uh, two games in doubleheader, it's always difficult to do, especially uh, depending on how the White Sox rotation uh, is compromised or the decision that the White Sox make to make room for O'Don, assuming he's pitching. So uh, it'll be tough to uh, to win four out of seven, but um, they should at least be able to score some runs here, at least before the sixth inning. Well, the other milestone is the worst first half to a season in White Sox franchise history is that 1948 team. They started 27 and 54. So if the White Sox can win 12 of the next 28 games, they could avoid the worst start in White Sox history for the first half. The best start for a first half in White Sox history was back in 2005. There's a good chance, Jim, we could be witnessing the best and the worst start in our lifetime at the crisp age of the mid-30s. Yep. <laughs> well, hopefully it's the worst. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll see, though. We'll see. I, the one thing I want to say about the Milwaukee Brewers, and their start has been impressive, I do not believe they can do what they did last year, which is when July comes around, don't try to sell yourself that your starting pitching is good enough to get you into the postseason. Get the horses that you need to outlast the Cubs to get into the postseason. Because if the Cubs catch you, you're going to be competing against the Braves, the Phillies, the Nationals. Look, Don't look now. Here come the Dodgers, which means you'll be going up against the Cubs. St. Louis isn't going anywhere. Uh, I think Milwaukee, I'd like them to make it to the postseason uh, because I think that their rebuilding plan is probably more attainable for the White Sox than what the Cubs and Astros have done. Uh, but they cannot sit around this time. If there is an opportunity to add a high caliber starting pitcher in July, I think they got to do it so they can get to the postseason. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned, you know, their rebuild and, and it seems like they're overlooked and that they didn't have that massive losing period. I think they lost naturally, but I think, you know, um, 
I, I took a sneak peek at uh, Penals' preview of the Brewers, and he mentioned that Ryan Braun, you know, signed to a big contract, gave him a big jolt at the start of his career, and now, you know, they, they whether they couldn't trade him or resisted trading him for, uh, you know, pennies on the dollar, he's still here, and they're going to, you know, at least last year, they made it interesting this year. They could get to the postseason, you know, they could win with him again. So I think, you know, to kind of bring it back to Abreu and the idea of somebody performing well and... Uh, the team not performing around him. I think, you know, <laughs> Braun, you know, ne- doesn't necessarily, you know, based on the uh, indiscretions of his career, you know, doesn't maybe, isn't it, isn't a charitable case or you don't feel that uh, um, sad for him because he has made some really bad personal decisions. But at the same right. time, I think it's more a matter of just like, well, you have a guy who's been around for years and just, you know, it seems like he's at a dead end and all of a sudden, uh, we got better earlier than we thought, and all of a, he's a key part of it. And so I think that's kind of a – you don't want to see him wearing uh, um, – yeah, you know, having the same, uh, I guess, the scandals that Braun's had. You don't want to see him wearing the same T-shirts Braun wears. Uh, it's He's made some regrettable decisions in multiple ways, but I think with uh, Brayu, it's a sign that, you know, just losing – doesn't always beget losing. And then sometimes it shows up sooner than you think. But I think the White Sox, you know, they have to play better than they have to get lucky on these uh, reclamation projects, which the Brewers did. Well, at least Braun has 2011 and last year, though. I I think that helps. Yeah. That helps feed as far as the excitement when you are a veteran towards the end of your contract. And But I hope you're right. I hope that the White Sox do find some success for Abreu to keep him motivated to perform at his best, even though I don't think it takes a lot for Abreu to be motivated at his best. Um, But again, to come full circle, I understand the frustration. Hopefully this series starting in June, the White Sox can show some life, perform well against the National League's best, and it launches into a successful June. And hopefully we get to see some new faces join the 25-man roster to give this team a much-needed jolt as we round, we pretty much run out the, the first half of 2018. But that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you to all those that listen to the live stream on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. If you never get a chance to listen to us streaming live, no worries. We upload the show into the podcast feed right after recording, which you can listen to in iTunes, Spotify, the Google Play Music Store, and of course, audioboom.com slash Machine. And before I get off with the normal sign-off, I just want to thank every single one of you that has listened to the show since we have started. One of you was a lucky one to be our one millionth listener since we started this show five seasons ago. And it means a lot to me that we have reached that milestone because we have tried very hard to produce a audio show that all White Sox fans would want to listen, whether it is our hot takes and our critical opinions about the team and try to provide additional insight by inviting guests that we think you want to hear from and have the conversations that all White Sox fans are having, whether it is at a bar, at your house, with your friends, with your family, on social media. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And having reached our one millionth listener, it means a lot to me after five seasons, despite all the losing that we have endured. So thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Sox Machine Podcast and Sox Machine Live. We'll talk to you guys on Monday, which is a big day because hopefully the White Sox will be adding some exciting new players into the pipeline as it's the Major League Baseball draft. 
Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X by gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.